If you have your Bible this morning, open to Psalm 91. Start there. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your right hand, a thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on, your, on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we come seeking, seeking, the, seeking the shelter of your wings this morning. Lord God, we come craving, Lord, the heat and the oppression uh, of the world the fire of our sins that burns inside, inside us uh, is driving us nearly mad. So we come crawling into the cool shadow of your presence this morning. We pray that you would shelter us, shelter us and gather us to yourself like a hen, hen, a hen with her chicks. Prepare us to worship you today. Prepare us to learn about you and your work in history. In Jesus' name, amen. A little backstory before we get into our subject this morning. Actually, it's about 500 years of backstory, but it won't take that long. Um, in, from 1096 to 1291, the Crusades, uh, the Crusades were fought uh, on, in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. It was one of the most, it was, a, it was an event, no, it wasn't an event, it was a series of events that would shape Europe, Asia, and indeed our entire world up to this very day. They launched in 1096. Uh, upon request from the, uh, from the dwindling Byzantine Empire, asked, approached the Roman Catholic Church and asked for assistance in their war against the, the rising power of the Ottoman Turks. Uh, and Pope Urban II gave the famous, the famous battle cry, Deus Valente, God wills it, that was, that was heard ringing throughout Europe, from England, France, uh, to, you know, to the shores of Constantinople herself. Um, and that, in that first crusade in 1096, it was primarily led by the French king and his armies, and they retook, and in, at the end, conclusion of that, it was likely the most focused and successful of all the successor crusades that would follow, which got increasingly messy and, and unfocused and uh, counterproductive. But in the first one, the armies of Europe marched across, uh, retook the city of Jerusalem from the Turks who held it at the time, and reinstated the short-lived kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, we could go on and talk about that kingdom and the crusades that followed and their effect for a long time, but I want to, t I want to focus, uh, but the man we're going to be talking about today was primarily one who had to clean up the mess uh, of the crusades. We're going to be talking about their aftermath. 
It's important to note, though, that by 1136, there was, excuse me, by 1080, um, so a little before the launch of the First Crusade, there was a hospital in Jerusalem. It was a hospital dedicated to uh, St. John. There's some debate over which John they were talking about, but it would later be, can- it would later be canonized as St. John the Baptist. This hospital is kind of what you think of when you hear the word, and, uh, but also combined, so it was a place where the sick, the wounded could receive care, but it was also like a hostel or a, or a hotel. It was a place that people could stay when they came to Jerusalem because um, like the major tourism industry to Jerusalem today, the same thing was happening in the 11th century. Um, pilgrims were making their way from all over Europe to see the Holy Land, see the place where Christ was born and worked and died. And they would come, very many would come with nothing but the clothes on their back. And so this hospital was set up to minister to them. It, um, everything changed after the fall, after Jerusalem fell to the Crusaders. Um, because now that they had it, they had to defend it. So a new order was added on to this hospital, uh, committed, dedicated to the, the memory of St. John. And that, it was a military order. It was the, the hospital and the military order were both, were both uh, manned by monks. By, uh, originally under the Benedictine order, they became their own order later, the Order of the Knights of St. John, or the Knights Hospitaller. They've been known by many names throughout history. They, uh, they've been no, they were one of three, uh, they were one of three orders of fighting monks, if you will, that came out of the Crusades. The others you may have heard of are the Teutonic Knights, uh, established in G- Germany, and the Knights Templar primarily in France. Those two, would, uh, those two would grow powerful, they would grow corrupt, they would ultimately be dismantled by the papacy a few hundred years later. Uh, the nice hospitality would actually continue up to the present day, and it's, uh, we're going to be looking at one of their leaders here in a minute. Um, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, to make a very long story short, the Kingdom of Jerusalem fell, its fall was messy, um, but the war with the Ottomans had only begun. At this point, the successive crusades began to do far more harm than good. So a lot of the defense of Europe from, from invasion fell upon the Byzantine Empire and upon the Knights of St. John. After being driven out of Jerusalem, they reformed both their hospital and their, and their uh, military order on the island of Cyprus. They endured a terrible siege and ultimately had to leave Cyprus, uh, and that brought, them to, that brought them to the island of Rhodes. It brought them to Rhodes in the Mediterranean, and in 1444, just a few years before the fall of Constantinople, they endured a terrible siege in that city. Um, the Ottomans took Constantinople in 1453. The, uh, there was a second, second great siege of Rhodes in 1522. Um, after six months of siege, um, the, uh, the Ottoman Sul- Sultan Suleiman, magnificent, we're going to be returning to him, uh, he he was so impressed by the valor of the knights that he offered them favorable terms to retreat with their arms, with all the, and anyone who wanted to leave as long as they left the city to him. And so they took that, and that began, and that began basically a 12, year, uh, 12 years homeless for the Knights of St. John. They were touring all, their, their, grand, their leader, the Grand Master at the time, was touring all the courts of Europe looking for a new home for the Knights to continue their fight. Because in addition, because in addition to running their hospital care and caring for the sick and the needy, um, they, were also, they were perpetually a thorn in the side of the Ottomans. They were a tremendous naval power on the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean is not like the Atlantic or the Pacific. It's not a vast ocean. It's a, it's most of the summer, anyway, it's a, it's a calm, 
hot, sweltering sheet of water. There's hardly any, hardly any wind stirs its surface. So naval warfare at the time was fought with galleys, much like the Greeks and the Romans would have done hundreds of years before. Uh, these galleys, they had small sails that could be set to catch what little breeze you might, catch, might get off the coast, but by and large they were rowed by slaves. The Turks took Christian slaves and stuck them on the rowing benches. The Christians did the reverse to the Turks, and there was constant war. Uh, to, Turks were seeking to disrupt and pirate, and pirate the, uh, the commerce of Europe that was taking place in the Mediterranean, and, um, and the Christians were basically doing the same in reverse. So the knights were, and the knights were fearsome sailors. Far, you know, they were, they were very, they were excellent sailors in, on the Ottomans, uh, but the knights were known as some of the finest. And so they needed boats. So when they were looking for a home, they were not just looking for a castle somewhere or a fortress. They needed a castle overlooking a harbor, so that their galleys continued their operations. So finally, so as the grandmaster was looking at his side, was a young Frenchman na named Jean de Lavalette who we'll be talking about this morning. John de Lavalette was born in, <laughs> I had this note somewhere. He was born the 4th of February, 1495. He was born in a, an illustrious noble family in southwestern France. And at, the, and at a young age, he left, uh, he left his home. He renounced all his possessions, and he joined the Knights of St. John. And that was the last time he would return to his, he would never return to his home again. The only time he would leave the homes of the order was to seek a new home or on their business. Uh, he, was, he was fully committed from the time he joined. The Knights of St. John were divided into l'anjus, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It literally means tongues, and it's basically departments. And each one was dedicated to uh, different, a different geographic region of France, or of, of Europe, I should say. So you had, uh, you had men coming from Germany, from France, you had uh, Anjou from England for a long time, um, from, and there were seven of the, there were eight of these total, I believe, that made up the Knights of St. John. So John de Lavalette was at the side of the Grand Master trying to find a home, and they finally received one in, um, he would have fought with distinction in 1522 at the first, at the second siege of Rhodes. He would have left with the Grand Master and would have been, then had this long trek in exile across Europe looking for a new, new place. Um, so finally, sorry, I think I had. So finally, in 1530, uh, Pope Clement VII grants the Knights a new home in Malta. Now, who knows where Malta is? Who knows where the island of Malta is? Where is it, Nathan? No, no, it's smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So imagine the boot of Italy. And then right off the tip of the boot of Italy, there's the island of Sicily, right? And then due south of Sicily is a tiny little speck. You have to zoom in on your phone to see it, and that's the island of Malta. It's this windswept, it's this windswept chunk of sandstone out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the knights were understandably depressed when they first arrived. Because they just, eight years ago, they had left Rhodes. And Rhodes was lush, it was green, it was on the coast. It was, it had, it was hit with the best breezes the Mediterranean could offer. It grew everything. The people were friendly. They loved, they loved the knights. And so, they get, and so when they arrive, they find this, they find this desolate rock that's going to be their new home. The, the Maltese did not like the knights. They viewed them as invaders and usurpers. And, they, and frankly, the knights did nothing to ingratiate themselves during their early time there. Uh, so there was a lot of contention with the, you know, with the original inhabitants of the island. 
The one thing Malta had that they decided was it had a wonderful harbor, one had a wonderful natural harbor. One that would be, so as if the Mediterranean is calm and placid and hot during the summer, it's, uh, it's turbulent and windy and dangerous all through the winter. So warfare in the Mediterranean at the time was very much a summer, a fair weather uh, exercise. That's why you needed, a, so you not only need a harbor to refit your ships and send them, have a base of operation in the summer, you need a place that could be safe uh, and not be torn apart, and your galleys wouldn't be torn apart in the wintertime. And so Malta had that. It's basically the only thing it had, but it had that. And so they began, they began to settle in, uh, they began to settle in and build, uh, build a major fortress with several outlying fortresses uh, for defense. And they did this because they knew another siege was coming. From the moment they set foot on this island, they knew that, uh, they knew that the Turk would be there again. Because the, the Ottomans could not afford to leave, uh, to leave the knights free, uh, free to act upon the Mediterranean. So they began building almost as soon as they, uh, almost as soon as they'd splash out of the Mediterranean onto dry land. Now at this time, um, so at this time by, uh, so for the next 10, however, they also immediately began their, um, you can basically think of them as, they were basically pirates. Uh, you know, the difference between a pirate and a privateer is basically which side you're looking at it from. And as far as the Ottomans were concerned, the knights were some of the worst pirates on the Mediterranean. Um, like many of the knights, like all of the knights, Lavalette served on gas, lead galleys into battle where the tides of war could change very, very quickly. In 1541, he was taken captive during a naval battle against the Turks and made a galley slave for the next, uh, for the next year. I want to read you a brief section about his time there. For a year he lived and survived. It was in action against the corsair Ab er Rahman Kust Ali in 1541 that Vallette was badly wounded and lost his ship, the galley San Giovanni. For a year he lived and survived in the terrible world of the galley slave. Only an exchange of prisoners between the order and the course of the Barbary Coast secured that his release. In that century, a man adventuring by sea in the Mediterranean was likely to find the wheel of fortune turned full circle in a matter of hours. Dragut, the greatest of all the corsairs after Barbarossa, if you would have been alive in the Mediterranean, those would have been household names. They would have been, when we think of pirates, we think of uh, Edward Teach, Blackbeard the Pirate, you know, and others here on, off the coast of the Carolinas. Well, these, these men, Barbarossa and Dragut would have been even more feared than that because their, their base of operation was uh, in North Africa and they covered all, all of Europe would have, uh, would, have felt the, would have felt the effect of their depredations. Eight years later, when Dragut, let's see, so speaking of, um, uh, so speaking of this time in the galley slave, um, the author writes, men like these were early inured to the vicissitudes of fate, and if they survived the rigors of their life to be ransomed and returned to their companions, they were of a physical hardiness and endurance difficult for 20th century city dwellers to comprehend. Life in the 16th century, no matter what class a man came from, was a question of the survival of the fittest. So, it, um, uh, it, so as it, life as a galley slave would basically consist of being stripped naked and chained to a bed, uh, chained to a bench, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, with several hundred, you know, with several hundred or more uh, other men. You'd be tightly packed. You'd have a long oar that would stuck out the side of the boat and was coming before you, and all men would be rowing that oar. Um, that's it. You would never, you wouldn't leave that spot unless you died where you sat, at which point you'd be thrown overboard. 
Um, Lavalette made uh, Lavalette made good use of his time there. However, he, in addition to the five language, five European languages he al already spoke, he added Turkish and Arabic to his repertoire. I don't know how you'd have the presence of mind to learn, pick up a language while you're rowing for your life, but he did. Uh, he was released in a prisoner exchange a year later, and uh, as as Bradford points out, he basically inured hardship for the rest of his life. In 15. 54, so about 10 years later, he was elected General, Order, General of the Order's Naval Fleet. He was over the entire fleet of the Order. Uh, I mentioned Arabic Turkish he picked up. He also spoke Italian, Spanish, Greek, and uh, his native French. He was, uh, at one point, he was elected to command the, um, the Order City in Tripoli. When they received Malta as their new home, the Pope also, in kind of a backhanded uh, rebuke, gave them the city of Tripoli as well in North Africa. And if Malta, if Malta was an asset, Tripoli, Tripoli was a huge disadvantage because Tripoli was basically in the middle of enemy territory. Uh, it was disorganized. It was constantly under attack. Uh, it was a mess. Um, Lavalette is, Lava is credited with bringing tremendous order and discipline back to that city, making an effective, making an effective, an additional effective port um, for the galleys, at least until, although he did ultimately have to retreat with it. It was just un, untenable to hold. However, it... Uh, it prepared him in, for 1557 when he is elected the 49th Grand Master of the Order of the Knights of St. John. He, uh, he'd, already been rebuilt, he'd already been strengthened Navy in, in every way he could, and one of his first actions as the new Grand Master, as the head over all the Knights, was to be, ins personally inspect all of, the, uh, all of the fortifications that had been going on in Malta, and he was not satisfied. And so he began, uh, he began working even more tirelessly to Complete the, uh, complete the fortifications. Which is good because in 1565, the long-expected siege army arrived on the coast of Malta. Um, we need to talk about the adversary here a little bit, uh, which is the parallels between him and John de Lavalette are very interesting. We're talking about Suleiman the Magnificent, as he's been known to European history. He was known by many, many other titles in the Turkish Empire, and it's worth reading them because unlike many people who take on such titles, he actually earned most of them. Uh, Suleiman's titles resounded through the High Council Chamber like a roll of drums. Sultan of the Ottomans, Allah's deputy on earth, Lord of the lords of this world, possessor of men's necks, king of believers and unbelievers, king of kings, emperor of the east and west, emperor of the shikans of great authority, prince and lord of the most happy constellation, majestic Caesar, seal of victory, refuge of all the people in the whole world, the shadow of the Almighty dispensing quiet in the earth. I mean, some of these titles are well-nigh well blasphemous that he took on to himself. However, he was, a, he was an exceptionally capable general, commander of armies. He was a shrewd politician. He was a, he was a skillful diplomat. Um, and, he, and under him, the Ottoman Empire uh, rose to its, its greatest strength that had ever been seen. He had, it was he who had driven the knights out of Rhodes uh, a couple decades you know, few decades before this. Um, it was he who, had, his capital, what he had taken over from his predecessor, the capital in Constantinople, that great, what had been a great bastion of Christian power in the east was now his, was now his home base. Um, and so in 15, he was 70 years old at the time he sent his general Mustafa Pasha uh, with the commander of his navy to the coast of Malta, saying that the gadfly of the knights must be, must be stamped out for good. 
He had no, so that was, one, that was one of his objectives, to make sure the knights would no longer plague his trade and his navy on the Mediterranean. But there was a second reason. So remember where Malta is situated, just south of the Isle of Sicily. The, uh, the historian I'm reading, his name is Ernley Bradford. And when, he, when he first encountered Malta, it was aboard a British destroyer in 1943. Uh, and this destroyer was headed to, was headed to Malta to, help, to aid in the second great siege the island had uh, endured, that uh, from the Nazis in the middle of World War II. Under British command, Malta endured that siege as well. It's another great story. Um, but it's very interesting because a few years, in just a few months later, Malta would be used as a base of operations for the, for the invasion of Europe. It would be part of the reconquest of Europe from, from the German occupation. We always think of Normandy, as Americans, we always think of Normandy uh, as, part of the, as part of the invasion of Europe, but it also happened from North Africa. And it happened with troops from North Africa after they'd taken the continent back up to Malta through Sicily and then, well, the rest they say is history. Suleiman wanted to do exactly the same thing. Malta would be the idea, he was also eyeing that harbor. He was not only for piracy, but also for moving troops across, uh, up north into Europe. Uh, and if, you know, so if later history is any indication, if he had taken this point, it would have gone very, very hard uh, for the rest of Europe. So he, he told Mustafa Pasha, so Suleiman, Suleiman was uh, magnanimous and gracious in many areas, but he did not tolerate failure. Um, so he told his, general, he told his generals that, that you know, he wanted his flag flying over uh, the fortress of the, of the Knights. Great Siege of Malta, as we know it today, began in 1565. It began in May 18th, the landing of Ottoman troops. It would last for, it would last for three months, but these three months were some of the most desperate, you saw some of those desperate fighting in possibly all of world history uh, because neither, neither, both sides knew their enemy, knew they would receive no quarter, knew there would be, and knew uh, for, the, for the Turks, they had, uh, they had the disfavor of their emperor behind them. Uh, for the knights, they knew they had nowhere to run. This was it. There were only a few thousand knights of St. John at one, any one time. They were never a large order. Uh, but they made it up for it with exceptional, with an ex exceptional armor and discipline. Uh, Lavalette, in particular, was a strict disciplinarian. He, he, uh, he, was, he was rigorously faithful both to the secular and to the spiritual uh, commitments, the vows that he had taken uh, as leader, and he expected that of everyone who followed him. The interesting thing is that both Lavalette and his antagonist, Suleiman, Suleiman, were both 70 years old at this time. And this is a time when you were doing good if you made it to age 40 particularly if you're fighting on the Mediterranean. Um, so this man was 70 years old. Um, it is said, you know, it is spoken of him that, you know, throughout, n men never saw him sleep throughout the siege. He was always on his feet. He, was, he could always be found with the fighting was fiercest, bringing relief when it was needed. He was an inspiration. His, he never took off his armor uh, like many of the other knights. He basically just lived, lived and slept in his armor, which by the end of the battle was dinged up and covered with blood. He had sawdust in his beard, not only, you know, from things getting blown up in his face, from siege, you know, siege cannons blowing things up in his face to trying to rebuild in the evenings. Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about the, the ebbs, and, ebbs and flow of that battle out before the fortresses of Malta. Um, one of the most pivotal battles was fought before the fortress of St. Elmo. It was this small little fortress just off the harbor. Uh, it was the first thing that the Ottomans it was the first thing the Ottomans assaulted, and the knights knew that would be the case. The, um, the Suleiman's intelligence 
his spies on the island had said it would take them three days uh, to take this fortress tops. Uh, the knights held it for a month. And uh, there's many, many uh, Turkish historians who later say that that was when the battle was lost, when it took them so long to take this tiny little fortress at the front. Um, from there, the battle then fled. Basically, um, the, as they did in previous seasons, the Turks were masters of, artil- of the burgeoning art of artillery at the time. At the time, the cannons were very exceptionally heavy. They didn't fire cannonballs in the traditional sense we think of. They actually, they would literally just take rocks if they dug out of the ground or pieces of the walls that had fallen off and stuffed them inside the cannons. And these cannons would be taller than I am. They would take days, they would take weeks just to haul out of the boats and set up. But then once, but once they were ready, they could reduce a wall to, to gravel in, you know, in just a few hours' time. They were so powerful. Many of them would overheat and melt and crack right there on the battlefield. So they would bring engineers to rebuild and recast the cannons right on, right on site. Um, they, you got to, some of that artillery was on display at Malta, although given the ground, there was a limit to how much they could use it. If, you, if you're interested in learning more about Turkish warfare, uh, read, a book, read a good book on the siege of Constantinople. They literally brought out the big guns for that. Uh, you, can't imagine, you can't imagine the horror that... Uh, and then they would keep up bombardment morning, noon, and night. It was constant. It was a constant barrage. It would just wear men down physically, just having to be constantly assaulted by this. Towards the end of the, toward the end of the siege, um, at the time the defense was spread between two fortresses, with a causeway between them, and uh, casualties were desperate. Um, casualties were desperate. Uh, the, t- the Turks had the momentum; they had the morale, um, and so it was it was suggested to Lavalette. Let's abandon these fortresses and fall back to the keep of Fort Angelo. This is basically the central, central fortress of the, entire, of the entire island defenses. It's the strongest position on the island. And so it says a grand council meeting was held on 23rd of August. One and all, the Knights Grand Cross proposed to Lavalette that the time had come to abandon Burgu. So Burgu was one of these two fortresses they were trying to defend. Burgu, they said, is mined on all sides. Mining was a siege technique where you would you would ignore the wall and you would dig under the wall. And you would basically build a, bunch, a network of tunnels underneath the wall. And then you'd, you'd be propping it up with wood as you go along. And then you'd throw, you'd throw combustibles inside, light it on fire, and leave. And when all the supports collapsed, they'd bring down the wall with it. And so you had, so underneath the wall, you had all of these, so that the Turks had been digging all these walls under the, had been digging all these tunnels underneath the walls. Many cases, the, uh, the knights would be digging from the other side to try to catch them in the act, and then they would be fighting in the tunnels underneath the walls. It was, I mean, if it's bad on top, it was even worse underground. So this thing, this had been going on for weeks, and the knights said, we can't do it anymore. Burgu is mined on all sides. Its defenses are ruined. The enemy has mastered the landward ditch. The breach caused by the great mine is irreparable. The Turkish sappers, those are the miners who were digging under it, the Turkish sappers had not remained content with their one success. As one of the knights pointed out, the whole ground near the ruined walls is so honeycombed with the enemy's mines and our countermines that one seems to be treading on the crust of a volcano. Abandon Burgu, they urged. St. Angelo is the strongest of all the defenses. There we can hold out. We will be able to do so better in the fort than spread out as we are along the perimeter of this place. There was not a single dissentient voice to this plan to withdraw within St. Angelo, except the Grand Masters. Having heard the opinions of all his senior knights, Lavalette rose to his feet. I respect your advice, my brethren, but I shall not take it. 
And these are my reasons. If we abandon Burgu, we lose Senglia, for the garrison there cannot hold out on its own. The fortress of St. Angelo is too small to hold all the population, as well as ourselves and our men. And I have no intention of abandoning the loyal Maltese, their wives and their children, to the enemy. St. Angelo's water supply, even supposing that we can get all the people within its walls, will not be adequate. With the Turk masters of Senglia and occupying the ruins of Burgu, it will only be a matter of time before even the strong walls of St. Angelo, Angelo will fall before their concentrated fire. At the moment, they are forced to divert their energies and firepower. Such will not be the case if we and all our men are locked within St. Angelo. No, my brothers, this and this only is the place where we must stand and fight. Here we must all perish together, or finally, with the help of God, succeed in driving off our enemy. The Grand Cross has accepted his decision, but to make quite certain that there, were, there could never be any question of retreat to St. Angelo, Lavalette now burnt his boats. He summoned nearly all the garrison from St. Angelo, leaving behind only a limited number to man the guns, and brought them into Burgu. He now gave orders for the drawbridge, which communicated between St. Angelo and Burgu, to be blown up. St. Angelo was now on its own, and so was Burgu. The Grand Master's action impressed the defenders more than any words could ever have done. The moment that it became known, every man realized that he must stand and die in the post, which he now held. The wisdom of Lavalette's action cannot be questioned. Had he followed the advice of his council and retreated to St. Angelo, it could only have been a matter of a week or so before the island would have fallen. With Mount Skibaris and St. Elmo in their hands, with Senglia and Burgu also occupied, the entire weight of the Turkish artillery would have been directed at the one fort. Nothing could have withstood it. Piali's fleet would have been able to bombard from the sea while the garrison was completely engaged on the landward side. Grand Master's view that only by keeping Mustafa's army and gunners divided between the two positions could Malta be held was as correct in theory as it proved in fact. Defense in depth was something that was very little understood in the military theory of that time. Lavalette's genius in the hard trade of war was proved by his ability to make a correct assessment and act upon it without hesitation. So the siege, which began in May, uh, had, was, had reached its final, uh, had reached its, uh, had reached the last defense. The, uh, the Ottomans were thrown back from before uh, Senglia and Burgu stood till the very end. And the, the Turks were thrown back time and time again from their walls. Or, I mean, their, their walls were rubble at this time. Every night, under what cover darkness could bring, the knights were rebuilding, basically just piling up all the rock just to try to have something to hide behind and fight again the next day. And so behind this, you know, this, wretched, this wretched pile that they turned in, they, they continually threw back the Ottomans until finally their morale was broken and they didn't want to lift another foot. And I mean, the, the Turks did not give up lightly. They were used to winning. Uh, everywhere. They were masters of the art. They'd overthrown, they'd overthrown countless cities throughout Europe and the Middle East. They were, this was, there was no one in the world who could match them in this, uh, in this terrible warfare. Um, but word reached of relief from Europe. An army was sailing uh, to relieve the knights, and, uh, and uh, a disagreement broke out between Mustafa Pasha, the commander of the army, and, uh, and Palia, who you just heard mentioned, who was commander of the navy. He was, he was looking at the weather, and we were now, it was, they were now in September, right about the period we're at here. And he was, he was starting to smell bad weather in the air. He wanted to get his ships safely back to uh, the Golden Horn. Um, so he, uh, so they, an argument broke out. They ultimately left. Uh, they got some news and considered, they, they tried to attack further up the coast. The Knights repelled them again. Uh, they left again. They considered coming back to try again. But at that point, their morale was broken. They didn't want to see, they didn't want to see Malta ever again.
And so the siege was lifted on September 11th, 1565, nearly, almost exactly 456 years ago today. Today's the fifth, a few days from now we have the 456th anniversary, the end of the great siege of Malta. So, uh, so it's a fun story, at least I've enjoyed it. But it's more than just a story. Because think about that year, 1565. What was going on in Europe in 1565? The Reformation? Yeah. The Reformation was in full swing at this time. The Reformation begins 1517, Martin Luther, right? So in 1565, Elizabeth I is reigning in England at this time. The, uh, the English Lanjou of the Knights of St. John had been disbanded, uh, disbanded under Henry VIII. So only a single Englishman fought the Great Siege of Malta. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, was reigning in Scotland at this time, and John Knox was preaching uh, in Edinburgh. The Scottish Reformation was well underway. Calvin was ministering at Geneva at this time. His mentor, William Farrell, died this year, the same year in 1565, the man who threatened Calvin with hellfire if he didn't go to Geneva. In 1562, just a few years before, the wars of religion in France had broken out between the Catholic monarchy and the Huguenots. Um, 39 articles were, were published in the Church of England, and in 1563, two years before the Great Siege began, the Council of Trent, the, great count, the beginning of the Great Counter-Reformation, began as well. So, you know, as we think about this war on the Mediterranean, think about all the wars that are going on within, within Europe at this time. Um, when you, whenever you study this period of history, we typically focus on our forebears in, Pro, you know, in Protestantism. And we think about their wars, both spiritual and physical, in Europe, as we should, as we should continue to study this. But my hope today is that you will never forget, while you're studying that, what was going on around them. Because it, it was basically a nonstop battle everywhere on the Mediterranean. Uh, with an enemy who was an implacable enemy who was determined to bring not only subjugation, uh, not only physical and economic subjugation, but also spiritual, you know, spiritual subjugation to Islam with them. Uh, because that was, uh, that was, this was a, this was a holy war, the Turks, that they were fighting. And it's very, um, it is, there are of course many factors in the providence of God, but one of the major reasons that we're sitting here in a Presbyterian church this morning and not in a mosque is because the knights held Malta at this time. Um, Europe was too weak, too divided to have successfully withstood an invasion if uh, Suleiman had gotten the foothold he wanted on Malta at this point. Because he, he, had, he had hundreds of thousands prepared for the invasion of Europe. He, uh, that title of Lord of all the earth, he wanted to, he want, before he died, which he would do a few years later after the siege, he wanted to make, he wanted to make it true. And Europe was next on his list. So think about that. And so think about that in light of the psalm that we just looked at as well. Think about, unlike, uh, so uh, Suleiman took that title of the shadow of the Almighty for upon himself. But there is, uh, but we know who cast that great shadow this morning. And that is our Almighty God. Lavalette would die, Lavalette would die a few years after the great siege as well. The, uh, as soon as the siege was over, as you can imagine, he started rebuilding. Because uh, at that point, they didn't know it was the great siege. They didn't know it would be the last siege. The knights had basically been, you know, they defended their castles and been driven out of them many times before. So he figured it would happen again. So he began rebuilding a new capital uh, for Malta. Uh, the knights, the Maltese, were actually bonded together by this experience. And a, a great love between uh, the two inhabitants of the island grew up. A new capital was built that was 
to be named Valletta in Lavalette's honor. Remains the capital of Malta to this day. There's a statue of him wearing his armor from the siege standing in the middle of it. Um, he, would die, he died of a stroke um, just a few years. He died of a stroke just a few years after surviving the great siege, and is laid to rest in uh, at Malta at this time. Um, when I consider, was Lavalette a Christian? He was devout in every way he knew how. He was famous not only for being a brilliant military commander throughout this whole siege, but every time any little victory uh, you know, occurred within the battle, he would have prayers of thanksgiving offered up in the chapel in St. Angelo for it. He was, he was assiduous in maintaining their practice. He was, he was staunchly Roman Catholic. He was, uh, and speaking of both his fierceness and his, and his drive, he was considered a man who could convert a Protestant with a glance or govern a kingdom. Uh, he was equally committed to both. Will we see, so, will we see him in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It depends on where his trust ultimately lay at the end of his life, just like for the rest of us. But there is no doubt that the Lord had raised up this man for just such a time. Uh, there is, it's, it's hard to conceive of anyone, anyone, you know, any less remarkable being able to accomplish what he did uh, on this rock uh, in this pivotal moment in history. And if you study, if you study the wars, uh, wars between Christianity, very broadly speaking, and Islam on the Mediterranean during this period, there are several points where you can find just see if the Lord had turned, th- had just sent some winds a different direction, or turned men's hearts in battle a little bit different, then the world would be very, the world would be very changed from what we know today. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where the study of history should be so encouraging to us, because whether we see whether we see belief or unbelief, we see the Lord's hand in all of it. And we see, him, we see him serving as a refuge and a fortress for his people. Uh, I, I just imagine, going back to the, you know, the time period we're talking about here, it's just amazing to me that he was, he was keeping Europe safe so that Europe could fight the, the, fight the wars through the Reformation that she did, that she could, fight over, she could fight over what the gospel meant. And so the Lord, and that was, you know, you can imagine, imagine our forebears in Germany huddled in cottages in France Besieged uh, behind, you know, besieged behind the walls in the Thirty Years' War. Um, think about and think about them praying and saying, "Lord, in their despair, Lord, you know, praying out in despair, Lord, where are you? Why have you neglected your people?" And of course, they, you know, they they may or may not have known at the time just how great the Lord's protection was at this time, because there was an enemy. There was an enemy far greater that was being held by a few thousand determined men out in the middle of the sea. And when you pray, when, so. That's a reminder as you pray today, particularly if you're struggling this morning, particularly if you're depressed, particularly if life just feels like whatever the Lord's brought you is too much. Remember the Lord is at work, and he will, be, uh, he will be your refuge, your strength, and he will cast the shadow to give you relief wherever you're at. We've got a few minutes. Any questions this morning? I know that was a lot of material, and I really appreciate all of your attention. Yeah, Greg. Are you talking about the knights? Yeah, yeah they, were, uh, they were actually very, very, very international in flavor. So they would have been pulling from at least, uh, they would have been pulling from five European countries and then three re- major regions within France, if my, if my memory serves. So Germany, Italy, um, France, the English one would have been broken, but they, they, would have had, uh, they would have had order from the Netherlands as well, if I, if I remember correctly. So they were very, very international in flavor. They were fighting, they were, I mean, they were, they made no bones about it. They were fighting defense of the faith, is 
what they believed they were doing. They were fighting for Christian Europe or Roman Catholic Europe as they understood it uh, at the time. So, and as a matter of fact, um, after the Great Siege, Lavalette was offered a cardinal was offered a cardinalship by the Pope, and he politely declined because he wanted to stay out of Vatican politics. He liked the independence that the Knights enjoyed at this time. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons that made them so effective. They were they stayed out a lot of the uh, a lot of the politics of the Catholic Church. At the Was this new to anyone, or has anyone, has, uh, has anyone studied this period of history or heard of the Knights Hospitaller before? Lavalette was mentioned in history back, back in elementary school. But really? It was, it was just like a short little Lavalette defending Malta. And that is what he's known for, you know, this siege is what he's ultimately known right. for yeah, today. The, uh, this, was, this was the zenith of the, of the Order of St. John. Uh, it would never, it was, it was at its most powerful in the Siege of Malta and would begin its decline, uh, mainly because, praise God, uh, the wars with the Ottomans, the Ottomans began to fight amongst themselves and um, a lot of the wars began to fall off as well. So the need, for, the need that they'd been risen up for had fallen away. Um, the, night, the Order of St. John remains to this day, as I mentioned before, though. Uh, they are now, they're now headquartered in Vatican City, and they are a primarily humanitarian and charitable organization. Um, and they are still active, particularly in ministry to the blind, uh, all, around the in, all around the world. Uh, they're known as now today as the, as the Holy Order of St. John of um, Jerusalem, of Rhodes, and of Malta. As they're full, they just kind of cram, cram all their major exploits into the title. There is also a, there's also a, been a restore, under Queen, Queen Victoria, we'll talk about in a few weeks, she actually oversaw the restoration of the British L'Anjou of the Knights of St. John. So there's actually a somewhat distinct Order of St. John in England at this time um, that continues to, the, continues to present day as well. Like the Catholic Order, they are um, they're primarily committed to humanitarian and uh, charity work uh, around the world. But the Knights of St. John remains the oldest order of chivalry that still remains uh, anywhere in the world. So they are they're kind of this holdover from the Middle Ages to up to this day. All right, no other questions, then let's pray and prepare for worship this morning. Lord God, we thank you for the hand, we thank you for the hand that you've taken all throughout history. Uh, in big scale, in the lives of men and nations and whole continents, and we thank you that you're as, just as attentive to the day-to-day -day coming and going of our own lives. Lord God, we pray for, we pray you would increase, Lord, use what we've learned today to increase our trust upon you. Lord, we pray that when we pray, we would cast all our cares upon you, we would trust you for the outcome. Heavenly Father, give us strength to fight the battles that you've brought us, Lord, particularly to love our Lord Jesus and to tell others of his love. Lord, when it is awkward, when it is hard, even when it is resisted, I pray that we would do so. Lord God, I pray, let us fight our battles in the spirit with our own sin and with the rebellion of others. And let, let keep us from having to fight them, fight them with our hands and with our swords. Lord, as has been done throughout history. Heavenly Father, we ask and we long for the reign of the Prince of Peace. We make this prayer in his name.